On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Cam, and Cam was married to a physically abusive narcissist. It's a story of child abuse, people-pleasing, being good enough, coercive control, and Jehovah's Witnesses. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Cam. How are you? I'm well. How about you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. And if you want to be a guest like Cam is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And we're always looking for more stories. So please do send in your stories. And a content warning for this episode, as this episode discusses child abuse, childhood physical abuse. There's also physical abuse as an adult in this story as well. We have graphic descriptions of it in this episode. We also have mention of suicidal ideation, a suicide attempt, and self-harm in this episode. So that is your content warning for this episode. And today you're going to hear Cam's story, and we have not had a lot of men on the show, so I just want to thank Cam for for being our guest today. And you know, Cam is currently wearing his uh, Star Trek shirt. He's a big, big, big Star Trek fan, as you will hear throughout his story. I just really want uh, to thank him once again for being here. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Cam, the floor is now yours. So I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, and I am the second of four children that was raised in a Jehovah's Witness household. Uh, I have an older brother who is two years older than I am, and then my oldest female sibling is two years younger than I am, and then the next one, the baby of the family, is 10 years younger. Being raised as a Jehovah's Witness is very high control, very strict. Uh, There's a long list of things that are forbidden. And the punishment for falling afoul of the rules was always severe. Um, It was framed as spanking or discipline or, uh, as the Bible says, not sparing the rod. But in my childhood, there were what I nowadays call weapons that were used, wooden spoons, um, leather belt. At one point, a length of garden hose was used. And in the absence of something, then slap in the face, especially was my mother's favorite uh, thing to do. Yeah, so being the second of four... um I kind of followed in my brother's shadow in many ways. I was very outspoken. In fact, I was always told to keep my voice down. I had a very booming kind of voice that I think even continues to this day. 
I was not afraid to speak my mind. Even from the age of five, I suspected that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, liked my sister a lot more than she liked my brother and I, and was not afraid to ask my mother about that very forcefully right in my grandmother's presence. <laughs> um, growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, I was definitely a nerd. I was a Star Trek nerd, still am. I enjoyed reading. And one of the things about being a Jehovah's Witness is that you always have to make sure that you've read your Watchtower and you're awake and that you've done your Bible reading for the week and studied the Watchtower article for the weekend as thoroughly as possible. But that kind of stuff didn't interest me as much. But what I would do is try to be a people pleaser and pretend to study it as thoroughly as possible just to keep my parents happy because if they felt like I had rushed it or not done it to their satisfaction, then they would make me go back and start it all over again. In school, I was definitely not the popular kid in the class or in the school at all, partly because of being a Jehovah's Witness, also partly because I have a vision impairment and so always had to sit at the front of the class. And when I would read, I would have to hold a book about one or two inches away from my nose practically just to be able to read it. So the target of a lot of harassment at school because I was stuck being raised in the Jehovah's Witness cult, as I now call it. And uh, also my brother and I, we did not get along at home either. So it was kind of harassment and teasing on two fronts. I didn't get along with my brother. We had to share a bedroom and it was very much like stay on your side of the bedroom and I'll stay on mine and don't look at me, don't breathe on me, don't touch me. One of the worst punishments that he and I ever had to experience together was being made to stand in the middle of the living room and hug each other for five minutes. That's how much we did not get along with each other at all. And it was kind of the same thing with uh, the other students at school. I didn't like them just as much as I did not like my older brother one bit. Did not like being around them, could not wait to get away from them. When my brother moved out at the age of 16, I was so happy to have him gone and out of the house. He went his own way. He also clashed with my parents. And quietly, I kind of respected his courage at being willing to speak his mind with them. And even after he left, I would kind of do the same <laughs> because my brother did it. So why can't I kind of thing? The problem was that. Because I spoke my mind, it would earn me slaps in the face, uh, violence like the wooden spoon, the garden hose, the leather belt, or threats of unspecified violence if I didn't take back what I said. So by the time I was in high school, at the age of 16, I was in grade 11. Um, I was really at a point where I would suppress my true emotions if I was unhappy or sad or depressed and would not want to share those because if I did speak up about them, if I did try to stand up for myself, I would face punishment basically for doing that. 
And so I would retreat into myself. And even at times um, in the last few months of living at home, I would get up super early to go to school and I would be at the school before even the principal got there because I just wanted to get out of the house and away from my parents. I did not want to be around them at all. But you can only suppress your emotions and be a people pleaser for so long, especially as a teenager, before it boils over. And what I felt was this growing hatred and a burning desire to either not be alive or to unalive my parents. And so when I was 16 and a half, it finally got to a point where I was talking with a school counselor because I didn't feel that I could trust anyone else, especially not any Jehovah's Witnesses that I knew or any elders. And I told her, I am about ready to kill my parents if I don't kill myself. How did they respond? Well, she told me that she had a legal obligation to inform my parents, knowing what she knew. And so we had to have probably what was the most uncomfortable phone call ever, where we called her up and I revealed to my mother that I was speaking with the school counselor and had been for several months um, in secret. And that, yeah, the emotional and physical abuse that they had been putting upon me, I had reached a breaking point. And the response that I got was, we'll talk about this when you get home. The counselor didn't call the police or any child services? She didn't. And she asked me if I wanted to um, not go home and go somewhere else. And I said to her, I don't really know if I have anywhere that I could go because all of my friends are Jehovah's Witnesses. And the friends that I had in school that were not Jehovah's Witnesses, I wasn't sure if I was close enough with any of them to be like, can I come to your place? So I did go home that night and my father came to my bedroom and he said, what's this I hear about you planning to kill my wife? And I said, well, it's not that I'm planning to. It's just I'm trying to help you to understand just how angry I feel towards the two of you. And he said to me that your brother took us for a ride with all of his shenanigans. And he said, I am not going to be taken on that same kind of a ride with you. So shape up and get dressed for the meeting tonight because that was a Jehovah's Witness meeting night. And when I went to the meeting, I was so sad, so depressed, walking in the the door to the Kingdom Hall that he grabbed my hair at the base of my, like at the base of my hairline and pulled upward and said, nobody wants to see you looking depressed, so put a smile on. And that was definitely the last straw for me. The best thing to do was to GTFO, just get out. And two days later, on a Saturday morning, after coming home from doing the door knocking thing that Jehovah's Witnesses were known for, I packed up three bags and took off running and ran away. And as a result, I got to go and live at uh, an emergency shelter for youth. 
And eventually child welfare took me in. And over the next two to three years, I had to really try to figure out what concept of family and friends means to me. Because a few months after running away, I announced that I did not want to be a Jehovah's Witness anymore, that I didn't trust any of that, um, any of that community, and that they didn't help me even as a child when I reached out and asked for help, even telling them that my parents beat me and they didn't do anything about it. I was like, no, I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. And because of that, my parents and everyone that I had ever called a friend that was a Jehovah's Witness shunned me from that point forward because I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness anymore. So because of that, my sense of self-esteem and self-worth dropped significantly because it made me wonder, like, do I even have such a thing as friends? And if my own family doesn't want anything to do with me, then who would? And I am a disposable human being. And that's what I, that's what I told myself. And for about a year or two after running away, I struggled with um, an even deeper depression. I struggled with uh, suicidal ideations, survived multiple attempts at trying to die by suicide in traffic, and somehow managed to still graduate from high school and build something for myself from scratch. And while I was living in a foster home, there was this one family that kind of took me in as a member of their family. And I never lived with them. And there was never any sort of legal adoption process that happened. But to this day, I still call them mom and dad and like my brother and my sister. And when it comes to the people that biologically created me, well, to be honest, I actually refer to them only by their first names. So you've gone through a tremendous amount of trauma already, and you're now in the foster system. So how is that experience and what happens when you leave it? It was incredibly difficult. One of the things that happens when you are a child in the child welfare system is you can wind up moving a lot. I lived first at the at a emergency shelter for youth, then in a group home, then in a foster home, and over over the course of one summer, that's basically when I was living there, shortly after the summer ended, the foster home decided to shut down. And I got moved into another foster home that I think it was two days after I moved in, they announced that they were going to close their foster home too. And so I moved through a few other group homes. And in my grade 12 year, I wound up being set up with supported independent living in my first apartment while still going to school. In fact, it was quite lucky because. I got to be in an apartment one block away from my high school. <laughs> so it was fantastic. <laughs> um, but it but it was also lonely because everybody that I went to school with, they all still lived with their families and 
um, they were looking forward to graduation. Their families were paying for things like their prom dresses or their their prom tuxedos and whatnot. There was going to be after parties that they were going to be able to have. And I didn't have any of that. And when I did graduate and at the grad ceremony where we all walk across the stage in cap and gown, I didn't have any family members there. I had my social worker there. And it was it was very difficult. And then after finishing high school, it's not like I had a job lined up, but at least child welfare was still like giving me some money to live on each month while I tried to figure out what it was that I was going to do with my life, what kind of career I was going to have. And without the support of like any kind of parental guidance, it fell on my shoulders to figure out what it was that I wanted to do in life. and even when I was still living back at home, I was very good with computers. I was very interested in computers. And so I wound up starting to learn, at least formally, how to create computer networks, how to build them, how to fix them, and go from there. There were some people that uh, used to say when I was about 18 years old that I was like a 40-year-old in an 18-year-old's body because I'd had to grow up so much in the course of two years and figure out a bunch of things that other teens don't have to really think about. It was, it was challenging. And one thing that I will say is that at least child welfare provided me with a psychologist that I was able to see once a week to really try to unpack a lot of the things that I had been through as a teenager and as a, and as a child. And it wasn't until after speaking with this psychologist for a couple of years, when I would describe to her what quote unquote spanking at home was like, her jaw dropped and she said, that's not spanking, that's child abuse. You were abused as a child. And that was really something hard to accept because I'm like, well, how does that, how does that even happen? Like who does that to their kids? Who, who does something like that? It had happened to me and I didn't realize it at the time. Um, even when being hit with the garden hose 30 plus times in one go that I was actually being abused. I thought that I was being punished for something that I had done wrong and that what I had done, I deserved. So just Imagine just trying to come to grips with that, that the people that are your parents and that you're, you believe are supposed to be the ones that love you and want nothing but the best for you are also the ones that are kicking the shit out of you. So you live away from being a JW for a whole nine years and you have a highs and lows during this time, but eventually you do hit a big, big, big low. And the indoctrination of being a JW just really started popping up during this low point. And you felt that your life wouldn't have any meaning without being a JW. And even though that you were in love at the time with this woman who you've been dating for a while, this person wasn't a JW. And the indoctrination really got the best of you here. So if you were going to you know, really be a JW, you had to find the right partner for you. And that person had to be a Jehovah's witness. So for the next year, 
you spend your life, you know, trying to prove to the JW congregation that's near you to reinstate you, which they eventually do. And that gives you a relationship again, also with your biological family too. So they come back into your life as well. And then eventually you're visiting a JW friend in their town and you go to a meeting where you meet the person that you will eventually marry and who becomes the next abuser in your life. So walk us through this. So I was out visiting him for the weekend. Uh, He lived out of town. I went out to visit him and um, what would happen on Sunday, there's always a meeting on Sunday. The younger ones in the congregation, and by younger, I mean like early 20s, <laughs> they, they, would, uh, they would go for brunch after the meeting was over and then uh, kind of go from there. So we met when I went with them for brunch. I was sitting at one end of the table and this woman uh, was sitting to my right and we just seemed to get along the the conversation between us seemed to flow fairly well. Um, there were times where some people might make a joke at her expense, nothing malicious, and she would laugh it off and and whatnot. So I thought like, oh great, she has like an amazing sense of humor. And after brunch was over, I got back in the car with my friend, and just uh, looking out the window at her, I said, you know, she's kind of cute. And he's like, her? I'm like, yeah, she's kind of cute. And that was it. Like, there was no other kind of discussion about that. Well, two months later, at uh, what Jehovah's Witnesses call an assembly, which is like a much larger gathering now, it's like maybe six or seven congregations meeting in one place. In the two intervening months, the matchmaking wheels that uh, are so popular amongst Jehovah's Witnesses were turning. And they were telling her all about me and what they knew from me as as a child and growing up and how wonderful the two of us would be together. And this was all unknown to me. So at this assembly, it was during a lunch hour. I happened to be walking around the building and I saw her come walking towards me. And she said, do you remember me? Like we met a couple months ago. Like, yeah, you know, it's good to see you again. And that weekend it was, it was definitely kind of like, the group setting us up on a date because we would go for supper after the sessions were over and they made sure that she and I were sitting next to each other because they wanted, you know, nature to just take its course. They just knew that we would be the perfect match for each other. And what I found out about her was her father used to be an elder, um, but uh, he had stepped down from being an elder for a while um she was that regular pioneer type like you know going and knocking on doors and and whatnot um she worked part-time but she seemed to be able to support herself and i thought holy moly like this is a complete package and and she seemed to have like a good sense of humor and strong spiritual christian like jehovah's witness values like i think i've met my match here and After that supper, we swapped phone numbers. And what I said to her was like, yeah, you know, like, give me a call sometime. Like, I put the ball in her court. Because I always had this thought that, like, I wanted to be the kind of 
man that a woman could trust. I wanted to be someone that could engender trust in others. And so, yeah, I gave her my number. I said, you know, call me sometime if you'd like. A few days later, she did call me and we spoke on the phone for about five hours. And we talked about so many things. And I told her about how, yeah, um, for a time, I was not a Jehovah's Witness. I had become what they call worldly and had left, quote unquote, the truth. Um, but now I was back and that was kind of a litmus test to see if she would actually accept me despite my quote unquote sordid past. And she was perfectly fine with it. She said, yo, like that was then this is now you're like the prodigal son. You came home. Like that's all in the past. So that's nothing to me. It's like, it, it's who you are now. Like you seem like a decent fellow and that's the person that I'm interested in. Everything you might have done before is not a deal breaker. And I thought, well, this is perfect because um, anybody who is so spiritually minded as a Jehovah's Witness would not be interested in me. I'm you know, damaged goods. Why would they want to be with someone who wasn't still a virgin for that matter and hadn't been saving himself for the marriage bed and so on? But she was fine with all of that. And me living in the big city and she was living in a small city, I said to her, how would you feel? Like, if things worked out well between us, remember, all of this is in the first phone conversation. <laughs> if things worked out well between us and so on, like, would you move into the big city? And she said, well, to quote the Bible, as Ruth said to Naomi, wherever you sleep, I will sleep kind of thing. It's like, okay, this is great. She's interested in me. I'm interested in her. She seems really awesome. We went on our first date in December. I proposed to her in May of the following year. We were married in October of that. So from our first date to the date that we were married was uh, 10 months. So you've come back to the Jehovah's Witnesses, the JWs, and you are immediately less than the others that are there. And you are not good enough and you want to be good enough. And you have this construct that's going on and it's a very coercive control construct of this religion. And there's these misogynistic gender roles, which will be tricky for you to live by yet not live by. But you are in this spot of trying to be worthy of to be one of them and to be married to one of them. And it's this uneven playing field from the get-go, which puts you in this very vulnerable position. And since you're in this vulnerable position, this can all be taken away from you. And as you stated before, you got engaged and married pretty quickly while you're in this spot of being less than. You get engaged and you're married, but you're still not in, on this even playing field. So at this time, you know, in hindsight, what were the red flags that were going on while you were navigating this relationship and the coercive control construct of being a JW, a Jehovah's Witness? Right. So... One of the things that uh, one of the things that started to happen, I think it was one of our first few dates. I I still enjoyed listening to music like ACDC and Eminem, despite being 
a Jehovah's Witness, and you know that's one of the things that J Dubs are not allowed to, not allowed to listen to. I remember one time we were going on a going on a date. She came to pick me up because I'd, I I can't drive because of my my eyesight, which also she was fine with. That was something else that I was grateful for. Uh, she came to pick me up, and I showed her my brand new ringtone, which was uh, I think it was the real Slim Shady <laughs> on my Nokia type phone, and she just had this sort of like dark thundercloud almost appear over her head. And she just turned on her heel very quickly and stormed out of the room, out of the house and out into her car. I was like, Oh, uh, this date's canceled. Like what's going on? And I thought that she had driven away. And then she messages me and she goes, well, are you coming out or not? I'm like, Oh, you're still okay. So I go out there and I'm, I'm thinking like, Oh, like I'm, I'm in trouble. And she says, you know, oh, I'm so sorry for just storming out like that. She says, just that's a song that I really don't want in my head. And I figured the best way to uh, get it out of my head was to just get out of there as fast as possible. So I, I, I thought nothing of it. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, that, that seems logical. And that, in hindsight, that was my first clue. Something was wrong. But as the months went on, there was uh there was a time shortly after we got engaged, she and I had gotten an apartment that we were going to live in together. And I was living in there first. And I came home from work one night to find her there. And she had done some superficial cutting on her wrists. Nothing super deep. It was about as deep as like a paper cut would go. But took her to the hospital. And they said like, oh, well, you know, she's, uh, she's looking dehydrated and whatnot. They suggested that she might want to speak with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And then they, they turned her loose. A month later, the two of us were going to get together with uh, my youngest female sibling. We were going out to visit the parental units. <laughs> and I was on the phone with my youngest sibling there. And we were trying to sort out like some kind of a pickup arrangement. And at the same time that I'm trying to talk with her on the phone, my now fiance is uh, also trying to ask questions and speak. And so I've got one in each ear talking. And so I just kind of said, well, hold on just a moment. Like I'm just trying to hear her. And she got so angry. And this is while we're driving, by the way, she slams on the brakes of the car, reaches over with her right hand and grabs my left ear and twists it like a doorknob out of the blue. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, I want to get her and I get her hand off of me. And I tell my sibling there, I was like, look, I, I got to call you back. And I hang up and she just screams at the top of her lungs, pulls off the road into a parking lot. And she gets so angry with me for telling her to just, you know, hold on for a moment, takes off the engagement ring and hands it to me and says, we just shouldn't get married here. Take the ring back. And so instantly the thought that I have is like, oh, well, you know, this is my only one chance. This is my only chance to be with somebody. Um, never mind the fact that my left ear is throbbing. Never mind the fact that she just like physically assaulted me. I apologize to her profusely and tell her, no, 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 please. Like, you know, like I'll do better in the future. She just kind of 
look, sizes me up and down as it were, and then put the ring back on and said, all right. So the month before we're going to get married, we're out visiting my folks again. And she has another, what could only be described as like an absolute hissy fit. I can't even remember what it was about, but she just took off, like just drove off and left me there and then called me up. And she said, uh, she said that she wasn't sure if she wanted to go through with it. And I said, well, you know, that is a decision that you need to make because um, me and my family, we come as a unit, right? And she said, well, I hate your family. They're nothing but a bunch of bitches. Like that's an exact quote. And and she said, look, just give me some time to think about it. She says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you stranded. Um, I'll, I'll drive you home, but just give me some time. In the meantime, my brother, seeing all of this, he says to me, dude, don't marry her. Like, end it. Like, break it off, right? Remember that this is the brother that I've never, ever, ever gotten along with. So I'm thinking to myself, well, what do you know? Like, you don't want me to be happy. This is my only shot. And then even my father is saying, like, look, you know, you do have until, like, the very moment that you say I do to say I don't. And, like, you can end it. But I thought once we get married, like, it'll, it'll be better. It'll all be fine after the wedding day. Well, the wedding day came and went. And in the first month of marriage, in the time period when you would think that um you're like you're in you're in the honeymoon phase right um probably can't keep your hands off of each other kind of thing um it was 27 days after we were married that was the very first time that she punched me in the face and in the stomach and in the ear and was threatening to leave and one of the things, and it was because I said to her that I said to her, look, like, I don't want to walk on eggshells around you. And for that matter, like your family has told me that they feel like they need to walk on eggshells around you. And none of us want to have to do that. And that's what set her off and got her so angry with me that, yeah, she got physically abusive there and then less than a month after we got married. And in the time, and in that first year or so, first year and a half of being married, she took control of the money situation between us um, to the point where I wasn't allowed to have any money for myself. If I wanted to buy anything, I had to ask permission uh, from her. And if I wanted to keep any kind of money in, like, because I still had my own bank account and then we had a shared one and I just needed to get to the bank to close my own account. But in the meantime, I still needed to have just enough money in there to pay like the bank fees from month to month. So one month I held back $11 from my paycheck and she got super angry that I would dare to hold back that much. And I told her that it was just for bank fees, but she wasn't willing to accept that. She wanted every last cent. And what she did do was she put me on an allowance, basically, where I was only allowed to have something like $20 of cash every two weeks. And the rest of it, like any money 
that would go into the bank account, she would pull it all out in cash and carry it in her purse. When I would ask her like, okay, but what if, what if we get robbed? Like, what if your purse is lost or stolen and all of our living expenses money is in your purse? She said, that's not for you to be worried about. You put me in charge of the money. So, you know, don't question it. And when I questioned her a little bit further about it, she would get very angry with me and like throw things at me for daring to ask her about it. Now, the biggest thing that you have to understand is that as a Jehovah's Witness husband, you're supposed to basically be like the head of the house. And unfortunately, there are many Jehovah's Witness husbands that take that to the level of where their former wives would make great guests on your podcast. But I didn't want to be one of those husbands. But I also didn't want to be seen by the elders in the congregation as someone who um, was subordinate to his wife, because that's wrong. That's that's basically going against what Jehovah demands of you, what the church demands of you as a husband. And if you are not a good spiritual husband um, and looking after your wife spiritually as well as physically, well, even that can bring you foul of the whole judicial machine of the congregation. So like there's this sort of misogyny that you're supposed to have where my word is law and that's that. But I couldn't even ask questions about like, well, why can't we leave the money in the bank account where it's safe without um, having her get violent physically or even be like manipulative and turn on the crocodile tears and like, Oh, you don't trust me. And you know, why did you even marry me? And maybe you should have married my sister instead because the two of you get along so well. And, she would put me in these situations where I had to constantly reaffirm my devotion to her and only her, and that I wouldn't question what she is saying or doing. And remember, you know, I didn't have to marry you. You were the one that left Jehovah, but I, I still accepted that about you. So that power dynamic, mental, emotional, financial and physical power was all 100% on her. And this all became incredibly apparent within the first year of being married to each other. And eventually after two years of being married, you end up moving. So I guess walk us through this. Yeah. So she had grown up in a smaller, smaller city environment. She wasn't used to like, you know, big, big metropolis city life. And she was unhappy. She was unhappy in the congregation that we were in because it was mostly like a very affluent, uh, wealthy congregation. And we were one of the few people that was living on like the poorer side of the congregation, like renting an apartment rather than owning a house. And she just did not like it. And I was also feeling really out of place. And so what I found was that a place where she had lived before a smaller city where she had lived before and had friends there and had enjoyed her time there. I found a job in the computer industry, which is what I was working in that seemed like it would be a good fit. So we, we did move to a smaller town and 
the job that I was in, uh, the, the job fell through almost two weeks after moving there. It was, there was kind of like a bait and switch. They hired me for one thing. And when I got there, they had said, oh, well, in the time that it took you to move here, we've decided that we want to go in a different technical direction, uh, one that I knew nothing about. And I was like, I just blew up my entire life and took a pay cut from a job that I was doing very well in to move here to work with something I have no idea. Like, why, why am I here then? But we were stuck there because the move had basically like wiped us out financially in many ways. It's expensive to move. And especially when you're moving like from one province to another, right? So six months after moving there, I had to, I had to quit the job that I was working at because it was just really not a good fit whatsoever. And where we were living, the IT industry is almost non-existent. So it's not like there was another job that I could really get into that would pay anywhere near as much. And so I wound up working retail. I thought to myself, well, it'll be okay because, you know, we just, we just have to trust in Jehovah. And I am married to a woman that knows how to live on less. Um, you know, she was able to support herself on a part-time waitress salary. Uh, so, I mean, at the very least, I'm working full-time on minimum wage. Like, I can, I can, we can do this. And the cost of living here is less than it was back, you know, in Alberta. What wound up happening was that she demanded more and more money for her to spend. Because if we had an argument about something, or if she would behave in such a way that I would try to tell her, like, look, that's not acceptable. Like, really good example was hitting me. Like, if, if she hit me and I tell her that's not acceptable, like, you know, you can't do that. Um, we'd have, like, this big fight and it would always end with her, like, storming off and going and doing some retail therapy. And she would come back and, like, okay, um, you went shopping and now you feel better, so I guess I'm safe for a time but uh what i found out was that she was she was opening up credit cards that she didn't tell me about and running up credit card debt and she was essentially using credit cards as if they were an actual source of income and i would beg and plead with her to stop going and buying stuff that we didn't actually need because she was creating more and more of a load of debt for us that if we ever wanted to move somewhere else or, you know, pick up and go to another country to serve as missionaries for Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, that, you know, we wouldn't have the financial ability to do it if we were carrying all of this debt. So I'm still trying to be a good Jehovah's Witness and trying to play the spiritual angle with her. And I remember one conversation where I said to her, think of it this way. If I make $12.50 an hour and you buy something that is $25, you have committed me to about three hours of labor working for Satan's system, basically, like the, the commercial system. Because $25, you know, take taxes and all the rest of that away. Like, yeah, $25 cost me three hours of my life. You know, so so think about that for every purchase that you take 
And then the next day she comes home and she's bought herself an iPod. So <laughs> there was very clearly no, um, no regard for any of my feelings or, or desires to not accrue this debt. And even then, if I dared to purchase, say, like a chocolate bar from the dollar store, which meant like, at the time that it was 65 cents, if I happened to do something like that and I would, say, use our shared account to buy myself a chocolate bar and a drink or whatever, well, it would show up on the statement and she would find out. And she goes, what do you think you're doing? Like, how dare you? You know, I have a very strict budget that you're that you're on and that that's that's not in it. And that would start a fight and she would get angry with me for going behind her back. And so, yeah, like after um, a few years of this, I remember one time being on the phone with uh, my biological parental units and I was in tears and I just said to her, I said to him, the only reason that I'm still with her is not out of love for her. I don't love her and I don't like her. The only reason that I'm still here is because I promised Jehovah in front of all of our friends and family that till death do us part, that I would stick with her. So that there's no love here. There's just, it's just a sense of duty. And what I was told was, that's very admirable. There are people that suffer with far worse than you do from their mate, and they're still together. So, you know, Jehovah sees that and uh, will reward you in the end. And even at a time where I thought about the idea of saying, like, you know what, screw it. Like, I don't have to stay here. I don't have to, I don't have to put up with this. Then Watchtower put out this article where they were talking about this so-called real-life experience of some woman named Susan or, or Sharon or something like that, and how her husband Steve beats her, and that she was talking about it with her friend, and what her friend said to her was, well, maybe you need to be a better wife to Steve and be more God-fearing, and Steve will notice that and, you know, stop hitting you. And this was advice. This is basically direction that was given in the Watchtower magazine. And like when I looked at it, I was like, I have to stay with her. Here's Watchtower telling me like, no, you don't, you don't get to leave. You have to stay. Jehovah will really be angry with you and you will hurt him and bring reproach upon him and the congregation and everything else. If you leave, even at one point in time, I spoke to this one elder that I had grown to almost look at like a, like, like a father. And I told him about how she's physically violent and the names that she calls me and um, even like some of the damaged walls in our house from what she has done to them. And I said to him, like, I fear for my life. You know, like one day I'm so afraid that I'm going to wake up just in time to see her standing over me with a giant knife and she'll kill me. I thought like that, that'll be my fate. And I, and I, and I told him about this and I said like, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm supposed to 
I'm responsible before Jehovah for her spiritual well-being and 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 all of the rest of this. And like, you know, like I I don't know what to do. I'm trapped. I'm stuck here. And he said to me, you know, brother, he says, I really feel for you, but um he says, what happens in your house? He says, that's none of our business. He said, he said, uh, we're not here to police what goes on in your house. That's between you and your wife. Um, he says, we're not qualified to deal with that. He says, like, we're spiritual shepherds. We're not police officers. And I even said to him, yeah, but this one book that we all have, it was called Keep Yourselves in God's Love, literally says that her behavior is disfellowship worthy. So if it's disfellowship worthy, doesn't that mean that as an elder, as an elder body, like maybe you need to talk with her about this. Maybe you need to talk with the two of us together about it and we need to figure something out. I mean, what Bible principles can we apply if, uh, if, if this is happening. And he said to me, no, he says, no, 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 that, uh, that doesn't apply. He said, uh, just, you know, help your wife to see the beauty of being submissive instead. Like, well, good luck with that. <laughs> so anytime that I would try to do things that a spiritual husband should do, she would shut me down. And then what she would do is that she would gaslight me later on and say like, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm shirking my responsibilities. And I said to her, okay, but every time I ask you about that, you don't want to do it. Like you tell me no. And she goes, well, that doesn't mean that I won't change my mind. You just have to keep asking me. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to chase you down to do these things. Like either you want to do them or you don't. Right. And if I ask you, you know, like, okay, do you want to do this thing together? And if you don't feel like doing it at that point, I'm not going to come back to you every hour or every couple of hours or whatever and see if you changed your mind. Well, that earned me a slap in the face, right? So I couldn't, I couldn't even in a, a rational way tell her like, look, this is a boundary that I have. I'm not going to do this kind of thing. But she would henpeck at me and henpeck at me about these kinds of things, even to the point where she would, I told you how much I love Star Trek. And when we started dating, I told her I love Star Trek. And I had all of the Star Trek movies, like the collector's editions of them. Well, for about three or four years, she would henpeck at me almost daily or weekly, telling me why Star Trek was anti-Bible against the Bible and why I should get rid of them and why I shouldn't be allowed to watch Star Trek. And for that matter, um, I shouldn't listen to most of the music that I do. And at one point in time, she even went through my CD collection and put sticky notes on all of the CDs saying which tracks I was allowed to listen to on that disc. So if I started to show any kind of inkling of saying like, hold up, time out what you're doing doesn't sit right with me she would clamp down on something else to choke off my will to stick up for myself 
it finally reached probably one of the lowest points that I can ever remember. She reached a point. It was one of the many times that she was threatening to leave. And she would go through this performative routine of packing a suitcase. It's like, yep, you know, I'm walking out, I'm leaving. And I would always time and time again, try to convince her like, no, 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 like stay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I'd finally gotten to a point where I was just like, look, if you want to leave, then do it. Like they're just, I, I, I give up. Right. And she was in the middle of packing a bag and she was using a suitcase that was mine and that I had had for years. And I said to her, if you're packing a bag, you don't get to use my suitcase. Like that was given to me before I came back to being a Jehovah's witness. It's mine. Like you have to use your own luggage if you're packing to leave. And she said, fine, she's packing another bag. And I'm like, okay, this time she's really serious. And so I looked her right in the eye and I said to her, if you are going to leave and you do walk out that door, then I am begging you, please don't return. Just, just don't come back. Just keep driving. Like go, go home to your parents if you want to. They lived in another city. Go home to them if you want to, right? I'll clean up here and, you know, dismantle everything here and so on. But just, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this roller coaster. And she got so angry. She took the bag that she was packing, like one of those big shoulder bags that some women can carry as like as a purse even. She took it and swung it over her head and hit me square in the face with it. And then picked up something else and threw it at me. And then with nothing else handy, she came charging me with her fists raised. And I caught her wrist right before she was going to punch me in the face. And I said, don't you dare touch me like that ever again. You never get to do that again. And she said, don't you dare ever do that to me because I'll call 911. And I said, go ahead and call 911 if you want to. And she did. <laughs> she picked up the phone, dialed 911, and I just stood there like, okay, uh-huh. And then she hung up. But you can't dial 911 and hang up. They're going to call you back, which they did. And I said, they're calling you like you should answer the phone. And instead, she just stormed off. And then 911 stopped. And then they called again after she had left. And I picked up the phone and they said, Yeah, this is 911. Somebody dialed us. And I said, Yep, yeah, that was my wife. And they said, You uh you realize that like, you know, anytime somebody dials 911, we have to dispatch the police. So we are going to be sending them. I said, Okay. The police showed up. They came in and they said, like, you know, are you here alone? They said, Yep. Yeah. And I told them, they said, like, what happened? And why is your lip bleeding? And I told them what happened and I told them how I had even had to like physically defend myself before she hit me again. And I realized, oh my God, like I've just assaulted my wife. And so I told them this and I said, look, if I'm guilty of assault and I put my wrists together, like ready to be handcuffed, I said, put me in cuffs and take me away right now. I totally understand if you have to arrest me. And these two officers looked at each other and looked at me and they said, are you kidding? Have you looked in the mirror? Like, no. They said, your lip is still bleeding. And like, like, like we can see the cuts on your face from, from what she did with the bag. If anybody should be getting arrested here, 
it's her. Do you want us to arrest her? Like, do you think that she'll come back? And I said, oh, she usually does a retail therapy and then she comes back. You want us to press charges? And the first thought that I had was, how would this look to the congregation to have a Jehovah's Witness wife being charged with assault from her Jehovah's Witness husband? And I said, no, no, I don't want to press charges. And I said, do you feel safe here tonight? I don't know. Do you have anywhere that you can go? And I even thought about that. And I was like, well, everybody here was friends with her first. I'm the new guy. And there's no way that they would let me uh, come and stay with them because my wife is abusive. I'm on my own. I mean, the, the, the elder that I thought was like a father to me said, like, you know, it's none of our business. Like, it's, this is all on your shoulders. And I said to them, no, I don't, I don't have anywhere that I can go. Do you want us to take you to a shelter? I said, does such a thing even exist here <laughs> for men? Um, the police wound up leaving and she came back. I was, I had kind of like locked myself in the office and she was trying to push her way in and I leaned hard against the door and I said, I don't want to see you. And she just told me through the door. She said, don't ever piss me off like that ever again. And every trope that you ever see on TV and everything that you ever hear, even in real life about like a, a battered wife and the things that her husband say to her or boyfriend or significant other or whatever will say to her i'm so sorry i'll never do it again oh we all you know you shouldn't have gotten me so angry like all of those things that was my experience like week after week after week and we'll flash forward a couple of years and our debt load was super high enough and we were just getting further and further into debt each month because like the interest on the credit cards and making minimum payments, nothing was happening. It finally got to a point where I went to get a job. I wanted to get a job somewhere else so I could pay more. One of the biggest things was that I said to her, like, why don't we move back to the big city? There's plenty of work there for me. Um, you wouldn't even have to find a job because I could probably make enough money that I could support us both easily and we could pay down this debt and, you know, get things going for ourselves because we're not, we're, we're not making ends meet here at all and we never will. And she said, no, I would rather live anywhere else but there. Um, you know, I even sooner live in this other city that's much larger. I wound up getting offered this amazing job that I would make like more than double what I was making uh, where we were living, and I would get to do the kind of work that I wanted to do, which was like web development work. And I even found solutions for every objection that she would have for moving back to the big city. There was there was answers for everything. Like, well, we can't afford it. Well, guess what? Uh, as it turns out, um, I can get paid two thousand dollars to build up this website, which would be like super simple for me to do. And on top of all of that, my Brother-in-law is willing to drive here and load up all of our stuff in his trailer and we'll drive it back. So we, all we would have to pay for is gas. Well, yeah, but what about a place to live? Well, my sisters are 
looking for a place and they've actually found like a couple of really amazing options that are like even less than what we pay now for rent. Well, what about a job? Well, as it turns out, like you're working for Staples now, little Staples here in the city. Like I told them about what your, what your role is here and they would love to have you come there. Like they could initiate the transfer of paperwork like that. So you wouldn't even have to work. Well, who says I want to stay at Staples? You know, just all kinds of objections. And finally, she just said to me, look, it doesn't matter if you take the job or not. It, it, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm leaving you anyway. And I'm going to go and live with my folks. I said, well, then if that's how it is, then you've just made my decision so much easier. And I didn't care anymore about the whole thing of like having to be like a good scriptural husband anymore. I didn't care about what um, what others thought about our marriage or anything like that. When I kind of just took that weight off of my shoulders and that obligation off of my shoulders and said, no, like she wants to leave, let her. I'm not going to lift a finger to help her stay. It was, it was incredibly liberating because (laughs) there's an expression, um, an acronym, dilly gaff. Do I look like I give a fuck? (laughs) And, And that was my attitude about any kind of one of the power moves that she was still trying to play. And as if she was trying to call my bluff and she was packing her things and she was loading them up into the van that we had and, you know, taking them to her parents' place in another city. And she was going to make two trips. And she made one trip full of the stuff, you know. And I said, yep, yeah, you know, it makes sense. Yeah, you're probably going to need to make multiple trips. And we started making arrangements for what would happen with the things that she couldn't take and things that I wouldn't take and how we would divvy up the proceeds and everything else. And when the final day came, she was loading up the last of her things into the van. And I even took the morning off work to help her load it up. And I was even asking her a couple of things like, you know, do you want to take this with you? And and so on. Um, she had another temper tantrum. She's like, well, you know, like, you know, I can't take that with me because I don't have the room. And, you know, you're really screwing me over here by not moving. And I, and I just looked her in the eye and I said, like, you know what, last time we spoke about this one particular item, you told me that you did plan to take it with you. And that's why it's here at the door. So, you know, let's get you loaded up like enough already. I've had enough and you have too. And she drove off and out of my life. Well, almost out of my life. She drove off and I wound up just getting help from non-Jehovah's Witnesses (laughs) to deal with the remainder of all of our belongings, like people that I worked with, basically, and that had seen the scratches and the cuts and the bruises and such that she had left on my face and on my head and, and whatnot from her, from her abuse. Once she was gone, they swooped in like angels and helped me in ways that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses weren't willing to at all. I just need a, I just need a breath. Cause like one of the things about me, actually, even if you want to have this in the episode, <laughs> One of the things about me as I tell you about all this, I have this, I have an amazing memory. Like I watched Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan so much as a kid that I used to be able to just close my eyes and watch the movie in my head, word for word, scene for scene. And even now I can quote lines, entire scenes from that movie and even give like the same performance that the actors do, right? So I can do one. 
Ja? Khan. <laughs> yep. There's, so, there's something from that movie which always stays with me to this day, which always freaks me out. I think I'm scared of earwigs yep. be, because of <laughs> that movie. Like right off the bat at the beginning, the things that they're putting in the ears. Yep. And I, I, I can see it in my head. And even as a kid, I remember I used to have to cover my eyes for that part. Interesting, interesting little fact about that scene. Watchtower wrote an article in the Watchtower about, um, it, it was some kind of article about like, would you give your child a scorpion or something? And it was, they put it in the Watchtower magazine right around the time that the Wrath of Khan came out. And basically they were talking about how like this movie, uh, it, it's, uh, it had like a PG rating, but you know, it, it's, it's not for kids. And even like the, the director, Nicholas Meyer, he said like, yeah, you know, like it's not a movie that's made for kids. My ex-wife, the PS de resistance for her to make me abandon Star Trek. She found that article in the Watchtower library and said, there, you see, even Watchtower is telling you that you shouldn't watch Star Trek. Um, my whole point about bringing all of that up is to tell you that, like, as I, as I tell you about all of these instances of, like, physical violence and uh, manipulation and everything, my memory of them is so vivid that as I tell it, I, I relive it in my mind's eye. And I have to do certain things to remind myself that I am not still there. So this whole time, I've been playing with... Uh, uh, my lens cap for my camera, um, just kind of squeezing the sides of it as a remind, as a way of keeping myself uh, physically grounded in the here and now. I have this thing in my hand. I'm not actively getting beaten on. I'm not having her actually screaming at me. That's my memory. It's not my reality. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I just need a breath. <laughs> um, after. I got settled back in the big city. I had a lot of nightmares. I'll say that. I used to wake up in cold sweats, um, imagining that she was hitting me or imagining that she was kicking me in my sleep, which she actually once did. Um, or even waking up from like a night terror, imagining that she was uh, standing over me with a knife. And... The longer that I was apart from her, the more I felt like I could just breathe. The more I felt that I could just start to be myself. And one of the things that I did was I went back and purchased all of my favorite Star Trek movies again. And some of them I even found the collector's editions that I used to own before. Others I couldn't find, but... Some of them, like, I found the Wrath of Khan uh, collector's edition again, <laughs> put it in my collection, even like some model starships and everything, like just starting to kind of rebuild and, and get reacquainted with the things that, that made me me, things that were important to me, things that I loved that she had made me get rid of. And I found that my overall sense of like panic from day to day life started to drop. And I could, and I could just be myself. And not only that, but like the job that I was working in, um, I, I had 
agency over what I did with my money because now it was all my money. We had made a an agreement that like, you know, the debt that we had uh, accrued as a, as a married couple, we split it right down the middle, 50-50. And we made this sort of separation agreement where I would send her a certain amount of money each month and she would have to send me back acknowledgement of the receipt of that money and that would go towards paying off the debts, right? It was her responsibility to put that money towards paying down the debts that, that she had control over. If she chose to use it for any other reasons, that was her problem and not mine. And that was in the, that was in the agreement. And so I faithfully sent her that money each month and just to get things out of the way even faster with it, because it was going to take three years of payments each month. Um, I increased the amount that I would send her just to get it done and over with a few months after we were separated, the company I was working for liked to do things like scavenger hunts and not even, not even at Easter time, but you know, they had like some Easter baskets. So we would use that. And then they would kind of post some of these pictures on social media of the employees, like doing that event. And she saw this one picture of me kind of mid dash running for something. I was carrying like the basket. And she interpreted that like, oh, well, you're celebrating Easter. And she sends me this email and she goes, you know, I, I see that you're celebrating Easter, which is a big no-no for Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, Easter, Christmas, Halloween, all that. It's, it's forbidden. And she said, if, you, uh, if you're celebrating Easter, you'd better go and talk to the elders. And, uh, you know, like you're, you're, you need to go for a judicial committee again if you're celebrating Easter. If you don't, then I'll go to the, my elders here and they'll contact your elders where you are. And I, I wrote her back and I said, okay, if you want to go to your elders about whether or not you think I'm celebrating Easter, um, how about this? How about I go to your elders and tell them about how physically abusive you were and uh, I'll show them our financial arrangement and everything else and show them how you were abusive on multiple levels. And I have the receipts basically to prove it. So go ahead. Like, you know, if, if that's, if that's like the power trip that you want to pull, just know that I will respond in kind then if that's what you want to do, or you can leave me alone. <laughs> Because I have no interest in continuing any kind of feud with you. And she kind of left it alone. And then a couple of months later, uh, this was like in the month of June. We we split up in um we split up in February. So the month of June, she writes me this email, you know, and like in the summertime, Jehovah's Witnesses have their uh conventions and they'll they nowadays like they send out like invitations to people. The convention that year, apparently there was a talk about uh, about marriage. And she took that, that talk to heart. And she said to me, you know, after being at the convention and hearing this talk, um, it made me realize that I need to work on our marriage because we were, we were separated. We weren't divorced. And she said, like, you know, tell me, tell me what I would need to do. Like, I admit that I did a few things that were not the greatest. Biggest understatement of the year the century she says just tell me what i would have to do and i wrote her back the, the crux of the email was that what you would have to do is not be you which is impossible for you to do so it's impossible for you to do anything that would make me want to take you back 
because I'm happier without you in my life. I've never felt this happy in all of the time that we've been together or that we were together. And I am never, ever going to give that up. And in after a year of being separated, I filed for divorce based upon the grounds of, well, we've been separated for a year. But by the time that I filed for divorce, I was so beyond done with being a Jehovah's Witness because all of the reasons that I had left the cult when I was 16, I tried to tell myself that none of those reasons existed anymore, but they were all still there and, and they were there even worse. Um, the, the, the gossip machine, the, the judgmental behavior, the high control, the myriad of rules that um, had no basis in the Bible at all, even though they claimed to follow the Bible. And over time, like without having like this fog of being obligated to live, live up to being the perfect Jehovah's Witness as much as possible, and without having this fog of having to um, try to appease her, I found that I was able to start actually like thinking for myself and start really thinking about like, what are my core beliefs and what do I really believe in? And for that matter, do I even really believe what the Bible has to say anymore? Do I believe what Watchtower has to say anymore? For that matter, do I even believe that God exists anymore? And without, without the pressure from her and the pressure of like the, the congregation on me anymore, I started to finally be able to do the same thing that I had done back when I was like 17, 18 years old and kind of defining for myself, what are, what are friends to me? What are true friends to me? What are family? Um, is, is pleasing Jehovah and loving Jehovah and being the, this good little Jehovah's witness drone, uh, super important anymore. Does it matter? And over time, just talking with this one elder that knew me as a child, and I would tell, I told him about the things that I had been through as a child. And he was, was, always was, and still was, even at the time, friends with my biological parents. I told him about how they used things like the garden hose, the leather belt and everything on me. And, and he said to me, the elder body knew that that's what your parents were doing. We strongly suspected that that's what they were doing. And that's why in the year when you ran away from home, months later, when your parents moved out of the city, we wrote to the congregation that they moved to and said that your dad shouldn't serve as a ministerial servant, which if you're a Catholic listening to this, it's basically like being a deacon, like an elder in training. I said, that's all you did? He said, yep. I said, if you guys suspected, why didn't you call the police? Why didn't you call social services? And he goes, why would we have done that? Like, think about the reproach that would have brought on Jehovah and the congregation. So I was like, oh, I see. I see. So the protection of a child who literally asked for help from the elders when I was eight years old. And you did nothing and you knew 
and you still chose to do nothing? I said to him, why would I want to stay as a Jehovah's Witness? Why would anybody? Like, I'm not safe here. Like, the, 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 the people that were close to my now, like, ex-wife, or soon-to-be ex-wife, um, had lied to me about what the kind of person that, that she was and only came clean about it after we were married and stuck together. So, like, they lied, they lied to me. And I said, and now you're telling me that you, whom I looked up to as a father when I was a kid, and you knew that I was getting beaten, and you also actively chose to do nothing to protect the organization? Why should I care about this organization anymore? Why would anyone? So within this discovery, you start to question the organization and your belief in God, not just to this person, but also to your biological family. And you get shunned again. You get shunned. So what happens from here? I had already started to build up a community outside of the Jehovah's Witness cult, right? I had started to find friends that were like true friends and even had gotten reacquainted and reconnected with friends that I hadn't spoken with in like years because, you know, I was married and uh, JW and everything rekindled those friendships way back then. But I think, I think something that really, really helped was I found a woman not a Jehovah's Witness, that when I laid out my situation for her, like, look, you know, like, I'm on my way out from being a Jehovah's Witness, and I'm like two months away from being able to file for divorce, and this is what I've been through. And she said to me, okay, yeah, I get it, and I accept that. But then rather than rush things, she was willing to wait for me. You know, she knew that I had healing that I needed to do. She knew that I had something like I needed time to live by myself. And she waited more than a year and a half before the two of us like moved in together. We've been married now for six years. And there are still times when because of my upbringing and times because of the marriage that I was in, when I apparently have night terrors that I don't remember about the next day. But she's been so patient with me and so understanding and always so very, very supportive. I've been diagnosed with PTSD. And my wife now, like she understands what I've been through and remains a constant source of support. In the last few years, especially, um, I've been seeing a psychologist and unpacking a bunch of these things that have happened. My biological birth units and my two younger female siblings, I refer to them in that way strictly in the biological sense because they've also chosen to shun me for not being a Jehovah's Witness. Ironically, my older brother and I, this guy that I did not get along with as a child at all, He's now one of my best friends. And in all of the in all of the years growing up, we never said I love you to each other. Like there was never really like a brother relationship. Like I said, like we one of the worst punishments we ever had was that we had to hug each other for five minutes nonstop. Uh, he was my best man at our at my wedding to my current wife. Um, 
and he, he and I are in the same boat and I'm lucky to have him, you know, and, and as far as uh, family goes, you know, I, I strongly believe that there is biological family and then there's your true family. And if you're lucky, the two of them overlap each other a lot. In my case, my true family is mostly non-biological. There's a number of people that I call my brother and my sister. You know, we, we share no DNA. <laughs> we, share, we share no biological uh, traits, but, you know, we're family. And my daughter, uh, my wife and I, we adopted her last year. So, you know, like I've been able to like build up my own sense of family, my own family, and I get to choose who is a part of that family and, and who isn't. And I, and I feel really lucky about that. And there have been times where I've had this feeling where like, oh, you know, I'm like, I don't have family. My wife, she's the one that's got the family. She's got the relationship with her parents. And she once said to me, you know, you, if you look at our wedding photos, the family photos, she says, look at my side of the picture and then look at your side of the picture. She says, remember that two people on my side of the picture belonged on your side, but they were put over on my side to help try to balance things out. <laughs> so, night and day. <laughs> and if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be? Um, the, the first... The first bit of wisdom that I can possibly give you from my, from my experience is, and it may sound really cliche, is life is too short to stick around in an environment where you're trying to gain somebody else's approval that very clearly you won't ever get it and that is only there to use and abuse you. Don't get even. Don't don't retaliate don't return that kind of behavior just get out the, the the most empowering thing you can do is to get out and build the strongest wall between you and that situation that you can possibly put up don't let your abusers or abuser through that boundary under any circumstances that person is toxic to you, keep them way the hell away from you. And don't feel bad at all for setting up that kind of a boundary. Even if that person or persons happen to be your own siblings or your own parents, you have to take care of yourself first. Just because someone shares blood relationship with you, doesn't mean that they get a free pass. Know your own worth. And I know that sounds like just like something on the back of a Hallmark card, but or, or something of one of those like affirmation memes that you see on Facebook, but know your own worth and find your own worth and like live the way that you want to live. Like be honest in your life and don't try to live up to these weird high control expectations. And I don't just mean like, you know, oh, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, get out. <laughs> Although I do mean that too, but um, 
like don't accept like this high control sort of environment that wants to take who you are as a person and what you value away from you that's that's not the kind of relationship that you should be in so continue to seek out the supports like build your network of support and find people that will believe you for starters listen to you and side with you as true allies and that will not make any excuses for the source of abuse that you went through those are the people that need to be in your inner circle the people that will make excuses or try to diminish your your experience and your your story they don't belong in your inner circle they probably don't even belong in your circle to begin with they're not your friends the ones that will support you those are the people you keep close. Those are the people that will help you get through and you can get through. Well, Cam, we are assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead, which is you, Cam. <laughs> and yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow, this death takes place in the shadow of new life, the sunrise of a new world. So, you know, you brought up Star Trek today. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, at the end of The Wrath of Khan, is when Spock passes away, which goes into Star Trek Three, which I think is my favorite Star Trek. It's a good one. Yep. Uh, which is The Search for Spock. Where, you know, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Genesis is detonated, a new planet is born, Spock's body goes to that planet, and Spock is, is reborn once again. And for you, you've gone through this whole entire process of going through the Jehovah Witnesses to this relationship, you know, and, and getting out and, you know, dying and being reborn here once again. So I really can't thank you enough for, for being here, sharing your story. And, um, you know, you went through a very difficult life and experience. And you helped a lot of people today by sharing your story. Uh, telling it just very so clearly for everyone to understand everything that you went through and all of the little tiny things that were happening to you. And I really just can't thank you enough for, for being here. You changed so many people's lives today just by being here and sharing your story. And just a big thank you and a big hug from everyone who's listening. And we're happy where you are right now. And um, just a really big thank you. Well, thank you so very, very much for letting me share my story. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Well, thank you once again, Cam, for being here. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Cam was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions. And you can either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. 
Also, at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have a support group. So at the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And there you can see that we have meetings, Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need and to validate other survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters and agencies. No matter how big or small the town you are in, DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Cam, we hope you have a good night.